You're listening to Geeky Therapy, your audio escape into a safe place complete with comics, superheroes, movies, technology, conspiracies, and whatever else culture has deemed popular for the day. Geeks and non-geeks alike can enjoy in-depth conversation of issues plaguing the geek world with nothing more than a few clicks on your phone. Geeky Therapy is available on most popular homes for RSS feeds, such as Google and Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Beyond Pods, Spotify, and the Anchor app. So get your headphones on, kick back and relax, because therapy is in session. Hello, geeks and geekettes. Welcome to a very special therapy session, where we begin our preparation for All Hallows' Eve. A time when the barrier that separates the living and the dead is at its weakest, and the spirits of those denied entry to heaven and hell bring forth their reign of fear. With masks and costumes all around, evil hides in plain sight. When you feel that chill down your spine, and cold sweat leaks down your face, Know that you are being watched, and every move you make. <coughs> you having fun? Just setting the mood. A discussion of death and demise deserves. Death and demise? Did you even read the script? This is an episode about goosebumps. I saw what greater way to cause goosebumps in the mortal soul than to... No, 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 no. Not physical goosebumps. Goosebumps the TV show. The book series by R.L. Stein. Oh. I'll just go back to my coffin then. Okay. You do that. Happy October, Geeks and Geekettes, and welcome to a special episode of Geeky Therapy. This is going to be an episode that looks to celebrate the childhood fear within all of us that is shrouded within the celebration of All Hallows' Eve. October brings about many things across our country, the transition to fall, postseason baseball, and the anticipation of dressing up on Halloween. But for me and for many others... October stands for a celebration of horror. My love for horror movies and scary TV shows has been long-standing, and a reflection of that takes me back to my childhood. Before I ever learned of the staples of the horror genre, before the Michaels and the Jasons and the Leatherfaces and the Chuckies, there were two shows that filled a very odd and deranged part of my heart. Are You Afraid of the Dark? And more importantly for this therapy session, Goosebumps. 
Now, at the end of this month, Goosebumps 2 Haunted Halloween will be scaring its way into theaters, and that really got me thinking about the show that began my horror craze. If you don't know what Goosebumps is, it was a 70-plus episode horror anthology TV series that aired on Fox Kids from 1995 through 98. And the show was based on the children's books of the same name, written by R.L. Stein. Now, if you're a 90s kid, there is no way that you wouldn't remember the greatest event in all of elementary school history, the Scholastic Book Fair. No event ever as a child made me feel more poor than the Scholastic Book Fair. No event in the history of my childhood got me more prepared to learn how to window shop than the Scholastic Book Fair. But what it did do was pique my imagination and my interest with this colorful array of covers from these books that had various scary pictures on them from scary masks to sharks to skeletons to monsters and those were the Goosebumps books by R.L. Stein. Now I was never much of a reader as a kid so the books were nothing more than something cool to look at but the TV show when it came out I was more than interested in and kind of leaned on the side of partially addicted. I caught most every episode as a child and with this uh, with the sequel to the new movie series coming out, it really had me thinking about how much I enjoyed those episodes and some of the specific subject matters of those episodes continue to remain an interest for me within the genre of horror. So what I did was I gathered together a multitude of top Goosebumps episode lists and I created a top 20 or so episodes based on other people's lists and then I went through and I watched all these episodes and developed my own ranking. And so what this episode will do is present to you my top 10 episodes of the Goosebumps TV series and I'll offer you information about the episode specifically and some of what I liked and didn't like about the episode. And although this is 20 years since the last episode of its original syndication, listeners beware, you're in for spoilers. Number 10, A Night in Terror Tower, Part 1 and 2. So, starting off the top 10, we have A Night in Terror Tower, with this episode, we're introduced to Sue and Eddie, a pair of young siblings who are in England while their parents are attending some form of conference. And while that's going on, Sue and Eddie are taking a tour around the city with a tour bus and tour group and tour guide. Um, and the trip eventually takes them to Terror Tower. Um, so while they're getting the tour through the tower and they make their way to the torture chamber, they start wandering away from the group and doing their own little exploration. And it results in some of what we are introduced to as prop dummies coming to life and chasing them through the castle. So the two primary... Um, I guess we can say antagonists 
in this episode are the executioner who is prominently displayed on the cover of the book and you would think is uh, a sign that there'll be some really ominous moments, some near deaths. I didn't really feel like the episode succeeded in making me um, scared or nervous for the siblings in that sense, in the immediate threat of death sense. But the second antagonist that chases them through the castle and then they meet up later on is... Um, I don't know what exactly his role was, but I kind of viewed him as a mage. Um, you know, he, he can use magic. He has three, uh, stones that appear to maintain some sort of energy that he uses to cast spells and whatnot. Sue and Eddie, uh, escape from the tower and they take a taxi back to the hotel they don't have money to pay the taxi driver at the time, so they say, let us go in, get money from our parents, um, and the taxi driver pretty much threatens them. Um, if they don't come back, he's going in. So when they end up back in the hotel and they're talking to the concierge, that's when I feel the story really hits its high point. Um, they start losing their memories. They can't remember their last name. They find out that the room they thought they were in was vacant, and they don't remember anything of really about themselves or their family. And then eventually the taxi driver starts making his way into the hotel, so they start running and hiding from him. And what ends up happening is they run back into that mage character. Um, and he uses his magic hoopla, and they end up back in the Middle Ages. So, while Sue and Eddie are in the Middle Ages, and the mage guy, the executioner, um, are still looking for them, they run, hide, um, eventually, of course, getting caught and thrown in the dungeon, I guess you could call it. And they end up meeting a man there, um, who sets everyone straight in terms of what is happening. What this guy reveals is that the siblings are actually the prince and princess of the time of Middle Ages in which they are, and that they were sent to the future because their uncle, who is the executioner, wanted them dead uh, so that I assume he could take possession of the throne. So everything that the episode started with was a lie. And end result is they uh, all end up in back in the future. And Eddie, who you learn through the episode, is an expert pickpocketer, ends up stealing the one of the magic stones from the mage person um, so that they can't be sent back into the past and have their lives be threatened again. It wasn't very alarming of an episode. I didn't feel like there were any creepy, scary, alarming moments, but I thought the story was pretty okay and worthy of making it in at the back end of the top ten. Number nine. One Day at Horrorland, Part 1 and 2. 
So coming in at number nine is One Day at Horrorland. And it follows a family of four who are traveling to some amusement park and they seem to lose their way. And as they're driving and trying to figure out where to go, uh, appearing in front of them, which they don't seem to kind of see as well as, as the viewers do, is this floating image of an evil monster-like face, and it is shooting fireballs at the vehicle. Um, it causes them to come to a stop, and in front of them are the signs with arrows taking them to Horrorland, which is painted as an uh, al alternate amusement park. So they ended. They end up going. Um, admission is free. Everything's kind of looking great. It's fun. It's cool. The um, the hosts of the park are all quote unquote dressed as monsters, and they're all very nice and kind. Um, but as the parents and kids get separated and they're kind of doing their own explorations of the park, things are a little odd. And what ends up happening is they continue to get warnings by uh, a specific monster to get out of the park. But what occurs is they end up as part of a TV show slash or a TV show and a game show um, in this like hidden bunker of the park. And they, the humans are actually now a part of the uh, monster TV network. So Horrorland just lures humans in so that the monsters can use them for whatever kind of fun and hijinks they want, as well as eat them, most likely, uh, once they're kind of done and used up. I really enjoyed this episode. I felt like for the 90s, the costumes were done really well. They were big, bulky, just very, very engulfed in the idea of monster. It wasn't, in, it wasn't like what we get today where it's more of the realistic monster or the modern monster where it is what would a monster really look like i mean these are just big elaborate green horns um mutilated face type of designs um and there's a lot of creep factor in this episode uh specifically when the kids are exploring the house of mirrors um there's uh, a monster that is in there uh, and the the girl sibling ends up getting stuck in a room surrounded by mirrors, and this this creature keeps popping up and like coming towards her. For those that are claustrophobic or arachnophobic, there is a, a ride that the siblings go on where they lay in a coffin that is half open, and they go floating down a river. And what happens is the caskets end up closing on them, and um, with the with the male sibling there also ends up a tarantula in there with him. Uh, so definitely can be scary if those are evoking uh, your specific fears. Towards the end of the episode, they, as the humans, you know, the family is trying to leave and get out, they, the monsters introduce them to a uh, creature called Ripper that is pretty much going to chase and come after them um, because, you know, they're trying to escape. And I swear, I didn't go back and check it, but Ripper, the, the image that we got of Ripper was the same creature 
that is used in another episode in this top 10 list, and I will refer to it when we get to it. In the second episode, you know, they end up escaping and they get to their car, and I really felt like, as basic as this is, this scene where they're in their car and they're trying to get it started and the monsters are all over the car attacking the car, it was very old-fashioned ambush horror, and I really enjoyed that moment. I really felt like the episode kind of pulled out all the stops. It kind of added in that element of monster horror that I was hoping to get from from this pair of episodes. The story ends, uh, they drive away, and they, they think they get away. And what happens is you learn that they're still on the Monster TV network, and the car is being remote-controlled by uh, one of the monsters. And the episode closes with the uh, with two monsters on their couch watching it, and they turn it off because they're getting tired of watching the same old things. Uh, so one day at Horrorland, uh, pretty cool monster designs for the 90s, and I felt like they had a couple of moments where you really amped up the creep factor that I think a lot of Goosebumps episodes were lacking. Number eight, Attack of the Jack-O-Lanterns. So Attack of the Jack-O-Lanterns was an episode that I was really excited for, especially considering the concept and the fact that it already had the natural setting of Halloween. And when you have some sort of TV, movie, book, whatever, and the setting of the story is during Halloween, you already have that natural, spooky, creepy element to it. And it allows you to focus on other parts of the story, like the plot or the characters and things of that nature. I felt like the episode overall fell just a tad bit short, just in terms of capturing that natural spookiness. But with the story, you have uh, two friends, and one of them is visited by a couple of old friends, and they come up with this plan to scare these two kind of pair of jerks uh, that tend to want to terrorize uh, the main character around Halloween time. So you have the main character and her new friend and the old friends, and they're going to meet up on Halloween night, and they invited the two jerk friends to come along, uh, and they were going to devise this big elaborate plan, and what happens is they end up getting, so the new friends never show up to the meet, and so it's just the main character, her new friend, and the jerk friends, and they end up being led away into the woods by these black-cloaked figures with pumpkin heads, and they're taken to this stretch of street where they are just expected to trick-or-treat forever. And every time they uh, are done or their bag is full or they're tired, the jack-o'-lanterns um, pretty much turn the bags over, empty them, and tell them to keep going. And they have, I think it was like laser eyes or some sort of laser power, pretty much threatens the kids that they have to keep going. What ends up happening is you kind of learn that everyone in the neighborhood is a pumpkin head of some sort, and it's just kind of they're in disguise. And towards the end of the episode, the two pumpkin heads kind of shrink down after the two jerk friends are completely terrorized and run away. And so the pumpkin heads shrink down, and it's actually the two, uh, the old friends, uh, and they have uh, their aliens, and they can kind of transform their shape. 
and they end up pulling off their masks, their their peep their faces, which turn out to be masks, and they're actually you know really skinny, green faced aliens. I guess kind of what people would think about just in regards to the generic alien. Throughout the episode, there's this underlying um, story about these people that go missing during Halloween. And so the parents are nervous about the kids staying out too late. You learn that it's these friends, these aliens, that they come during Halloween to take people to eat. And so that kind of solves the the mystery that uh, the episode kind of begins with in regards to people going missing. You know, it was a cool episode. I like the setting of Halloween. I think it's always just... Uh, a natural uh, gives it the natural cool factor because who doesn't love Halloween and dressing up and stuff it was a little odd to have that alien twist at the end but overall big jack-o'-lantern people if as, if they just didn't have lobster hands I felt like the episode could have been just that much stronger number seven the scarecrow walks at midnight so in the same respect as Attack of the Jack-O-Lanterns, I felt like The Scarecrow Walks at Midnight had, again, just this natural setting of cornfield farm and this, what I've always felt was a really creepy horror trope in that of The Scarecrow. Um, just this naturally creepy presence watching over you um, or, you know, in the sense of watching over the farm. And so I was really excited for the episode. Um, the story is really simple. You have grandkids going to stay with their grandparents on their farm. And on the farm, you also have the farm hand and his son who, who lives on the property as well. And things are a little odd. The grandparents are acting differently than the grandkids uh, remember. You learn that the farmhand found this magic book, and he was he was able to bring the scarecrows to life, and he used that as a way to threaten the grandparents, and pretty much they have to do everything his way, because um, he always felt like he was never, I guess, respected. Um, and so... As the episode goes on, a couple of other things are brought to life as well with the with the spell, um, and they pretty much all have to convince the farmhand to never, you know, use that use the curses again. Pretty straightforward episode, probably what you would expect from a scarecrow themed episode. Uh, scarecrows are up on the stands. Scarecrows are not up on the stands. You had this really, what I thought was probably the best moment in the episode, when the brother was dressed like a scarecrow to scare somebody, and so you're kind of watching that happen, and then the next time a scarecrow shows up, you, you as well as the characters, are expecting it to be the brother, but then the brother shows up and is like, uh, that's not me. So I thought that was a really cool, cool moment. Um, again, real straightforward. I thought that the, the, the way they carried the tone of the episode, at least when they started it, was really weird. Because when the episode began, it was portrayed as a very wholesome family reunion. And you had this calming piano music in the background. It was sunny out. And then it completely shifts to them in the house. It's dark. It's raining. And you just know bad stuff is about to happen. I think that if it wasn't Scarecrow-themed... 
the whole story and whatnot just wouldn't have been as strong, and it probably wouldn't have made it on this list at all. Number six, welcome to Camp Nightmare, part one and two. Through the majority of the two Welcome to Camp Nightmare episodes, you really just get a a story in which really inconvenient stuff happens at this camp, and no one seems to care except the main character, which of course makes things a little odd and unusual, but it really isn't until the end of the episode that... Uh, you get that classic R.L. Stein twist that really pushed Camp Nightmare up this list. So, episode starts off with these kids on their way to camp. The school bus just kind of stops in the middle of nowhere, lets them out, dumps all their bags out, and leaves. Uh, eventually, they're led to a camp. Um, things are obviously a little odd. You have, uh, I think like most summer camps have, the tall tale of the the forbidden area or forbidden lake bed bunk whatever in this case it's a forbidden bunk uh that is that kids aren't allowed in and of course if kids aren't allowed to do it they're going to do it and they end up exploring it and finding the name cypher um etched in the walls and that comes into play a little later in the episode but during the episode, you have one kid get bitten by a snake, and he just kind of disappears. And then you have uh, a kid get hit in the head with a baseball, and he's have has these physical ailments, and no one seems to care. The counselors and whatnot don't seem to care enough to do anything about it. So the main character, he uh, gets very curious and wants to figure out what's going on so he goes to the forbidden bunk when he's trying to hide from some of the other campers and he ends up meeting uh, a girl from the female camp and it seems like she also feels like something's really weird and he uh a group of the campers show up and it's very military style and they're ready to get on the hunt for the missing camper. And so he goes out there cause he's thinking it's the girl uh, and he's going to protect her. And so he's going to go find out what's going on. And they have these dark guns and he, they're like, you were going to go find the camper and we're going to, you know, shoot her with a dark gun. Cause you don't want her to get hurt. Like they're trying to really justify the fact that they're going to shoot the girl and the kid he turns the dark gun on the, on the head counselor. And so what you learn is that this entire camp, everyone involved other than the main character are work for the government and are, or are actors. And this was just a big government test for the main character because his parents have to go off on a secret mission and they want him to be able to come with them because they're tired of leaving him every time they have to leave for work. So, um, you also have the wolf creature in the woods, which I actually forgot to mention. So Cypher um, is what they started referring to this this wolf creature uh, in the woods, which is the exact same creature model uh, that they had for the creature Ripper in One Day at Horrorland. So there's that connection I said I was going to make. Um, but again, like I said earlier, it wasn't until the end of the episode where it really got me. So not only the twist of of the entire camp being a government test for the kid. But then 
when he questions where are they going, they look up into the sky and say, we're going to a planet called Earth. And I was like, what? We're not even on Earth. Classic R.L. Stein. He did it again. Number five. Welcome to the Dead House, part one and two. Welcome to the Dead House is very much Goosebumps Walking Dead episode. Part of that is because they actually refer to the residents of the town as the Walking Dead at some point. Um, but pretty much you have uh, the Benson family moving into a house in a neighborhood that is very much ghost town-like. And the neighbors are odd and weird and pale and don't like the sunlight. So you also have uh, a little additional vampire element in there in regards to the sunlight. Everyone wears kind of big floppy hats to shield their face. Um, they tend to only like to come out once the sun is down. But what ends up happening is the family learns that the majority of the residents in the town were killed by a, uh, an accident at a chemical factory. And so the kids learn, they kind of come up on a meeting uh, amongst some of the town folk and they're all very pale white and they're talking about how they need the blood of the living to survive kind of stuff. And so the kids realize that them and their family are in danger. And so they go back to the house and they're like, yo, crap's going down. Let's go. We need to get out of here. Their dog runs away. Um, the dog throughout the episode could sense the evil. Um, you know how there's the idea that animals can sense evil and bad juju uh, in a way that humans can't. So the dog eventually just runs away. He's like, I'm done with this. And so the house starts getting attacked. So inside the house is the family and then their neighbors who befriended them. And when the townspeople are outside the house trying to get in, the neighbors that the the main family befriended uh, tells them that this old wreath that they have hanging in their house is maybe what's drawing them to the house, that they have to destroy the wreath. It's an underlying plot point throughout the episode that there's something off with this wreath ever since they hang it up. And so the neighbors convince them to throw it in the fire and burn it and whatnot, and they finally do it. And then you learn that the neighbors are also part of the Walking Dead, and the wreath was the only thing protecting the family. So they end up getting chased through the house, up into the attic, and... The daughter gets the bright idea. The sun's up. So no pun intended, bright idea. But the sun is up and she remembers, you know, that they don't like the sunlight. And she starts tearing down the boards covering the windows and they all kind of poof and vanish. And then they kind of run outside, get in their minivan and drive away. And then as they're driving down the road, they see their dog and it's like happy ending. They let the dog in uh, and then the dog turns pale and you realize that they that the dog uh, has turned into the walking dead. And so it's kind of like this ominous ending that they didn't actually escape. Um, and that the dog probably got them, you know, I thought it was, it was a cool episode. Again, one of those straightforward ones, uh, don't get eaten by the zombies, but there was one, uh, moment in the episode that kind of shook me, um, in, in a not good way. And this happens a lot when, so what happens is when the daughter realizes that, you know, the sunlight, that the sun is up and that sunlight harms them and she's going to tear down the windows, she stops and has to explain the whole plan first before she does it. Why stop and explain it? 
Just do it. Don't die. That should be your number one priority. Not proving to your family how smart you are. Number four. The girl who cried monster. Now as we start moving deeper into the top five at number four, we actually have the first episode that I watched uh, in preparation for this episode, The Girl Who Cried Monster. And for the longest time as I was researching and developing this list of top ten, I was concerned that this episode would end up high uh, simply based on the premise that it was the first one I watched, it was the first one that got the nostalgia juices going, and it had the first opportunity to remind me of what I enjoyed about Goosebumps so much. But as I continued on, the plot twist really remains as the top one amongst all the episodes I watched. So, for The Girl Who Cried Monster, the premise is pretty simple. You have a younger brother and sister, and the sister is always playing pranks to scare her younger brother. And she, one day, she goes to the library to return a book, and she forgets something, and so she has to go back. And she sees that the librarian is actually a monster of some sort. And she is determined to prove it. Because, of course, no one believes her because of all of the monster and scary type pranks that she has pulled. So one night she goes back to the library with her camera and she snaps a picture of him uh, in his full-on monster face and she goes to have them developed. When she is leaving the store, she just so happens to bump into the librarian who secretly grabs the picture from her as uh, the pictures are scattered on the ground and crumbles it up so that she doesn't have the proof. And in that moment, the librarian gets invited to dinner by her parents. So the... Librarian shows up, and you're kind of just waiting for whatever this bad thing is to happen, because the 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 entire uh, direction of the main character is to condemn the librarian, stay as far away from him as possible, and now he is in what most people consider their safe place, you know, their home. So the librarian comes in and he's, you know, just kind of having small talk with her parents and he asks what's for dinner. From that question on, the entire tone and premise of the episode changes and everything that you thought you were watching shifts in a completely opposite direction. So her parents answer him and say that he is for dinner. And when they're saying that, their mouths start to change and they have these very large fangs and you kind of get the shot away from them and the librarian, but you know that they are eating him. And then once they're done, they get up and they turn to the kids and they say, don't worry, one day you'll get your fangs too, or something along those lines. And the, the girl wasn't scared of the librarian because he was a monster and they weren't. Her family is, you know, just dead set on keeping their identity secret so they can't have other monsters walking around. So they just eliminate other monsters when they show up. 
you can have all the judgments you want about the episode and pull anything you want out of the episode, but it will remain in the top five simply because it had the best WTF moment of all of these episodes. Number three, Night of the Living Dummy 3, part one and two. Karu, Marie, Odana, Loma, Malanu, Karano. To the general person, some very strange and weird words. But to fans of Goosebumps, the curse that brings Slappy to life. Coming in at number three is Night of the Living Dummy 3, part one and two. So in Night of the Living Dummy 3, you have a cousin of the family come and stay, and he is known for being... Uh, easily scared. And prior to his arrival, the family's dad, who is a ventriloquist, has a slew of dummies, picks up a broken dummy, who we know to be Slappy, from a pawn shop and glues his face back together, which is a direct continuation from the ending of Night of the Living Dummy 2, when Slappy's face gets broken, which is what uh, releases the curse. So throughout the cousin's stay, um, he is constantly being scared by dummies being put in odd places, and the his two cousins are always blamed for what is happening, thinking that they are pulling pranks on him because during his last visit, they pranked him a lot. And so they keep getting in trouble. And of course, we are thinking the whole time, it's not them, it's Slappy. But what happens is, it's actually the cousin doing most of this to get back at them. And he gets caught. And once the parents feel like that whole situation has been resolved, they feel like they can go out for the night. So they leave. And that's when the juicy stuff starts happening with Slappy turning the cousin into a dummy and the two siblings trying to stop Slappy and save their cousin. And so they end up getting one of the dummies that Slappy brings to life was their dad's favorite and was pretty much like the original. And so he turns on Slappy and Slappy ends up getting struck by lightning and destroyed. Um, And the episode ends with the cousin who was brought back, who was turned back into a human after Slappy was destroyed, um, he's leaving, and he kind of does a full 180 with his head and is staring backwards at them um, as he says goodbye, indicating that he still has some essence of dummy in him. Now, outside of just the concept, which I really love, uh, ventriloquist dummies, I think, are just some of the coolest things ever. I've always been interested in ventriloquism. I can't do it at all, uh, but I would have loved to train to do it just for fun. But I think what sets Night of the Living Dummy 3 apart from Night of the Living Dummy 2 and Bride of the Living Dummy is that you see Slappy walking around like a living person. And my assumption is that it's a child in a slappy costume walking around. But there's really just something unnerving about seeing him walk that way. In 
Night of the Living Dummy 2 especially, Slappy's movement is more implied through shadows and darkness and him just popping up in places rather than him actually having movements like a human. And just seeing him move like a human with that with that stone frozen ceramic face is just very, very creepy. And I love it oh so much. Number two, The Haunted Mask, part one and two. Now coming in at number two is what I consider to probably be the most popular Goosebumps story of all time. And that is The Haunted Mask. Now The Haunted Mask follows Carly Beth, who is on a path of revenge as she continues to be terrorized by two of her classmates. Now, her plan is to have a really scary costume on Halloween to be able to scare them. And she finds herself in an old mask shop with a creepy owner, and she stumbles upon this back room that has some of the most realistic, hideous masks that she has ever seen. And the store owner refuses to sell her any of them. And so she grabs one, runs, and throws the money back at him. She goes home and she tries the mask on. And she has a little bit of trouble taking the mask off. Now why that's important is we learn that every time she puts the mask on, it becomes harder for her to take it off. And while she's wearing the mask, one, her voice changes and two, her personality changes. And what's happening is the mask and the spirit and the evil within the mask is taking possession of her body. While the mask is on, she acts very much like a goblin, um, a little hunchover, uh, very mischievous, try, uh, scaring little children, destroying Halloween decorations, and is just very much the opposite of her actual personality. So I think that a part of the episode, and whether R.L. Stein intended for this or not, I'm unsure, but there seems to be this theme of having to change yourself to fit in, um, in a way, and kind of rejecting your own qualities and projecting something else to everyone else. Um, ultimately what happens is she learns from the shop owner that the only way to remove the mask is by confronting it with a symbol of love. And the conclusion to the story is Carly Beth's mother creates a, uh, like a porcelain face model of Carly Beth. And looking at that is her symbol of love, having that as her symbol of love, which earlier in the episode, she buries as though she is turning away from who she was and she's going to embrace this new, darker side of herself. I just felt like Carly Beth's transformation into the evil goblin-like creature was very convincing in terms of her mannerisms and her voice, and I think that really lends well to the episode. But also, we have this me almost meta moment in which it's not just us watching a story and we ourselves are kind of feeling that tension or, or feeling frightened, but Carly Beth herself, the character, when she starts realizing that she's having trouble removing the mask and it's kind of sticking to her, she looks in the mirror 
And she has this moment where she says, um, those aren't my eyes. Where are my eyes? And there's just something about her acknowledging the transition and the transformation that brings another level of the horror of the episode. Number one, the werewolf of Fever Swamp, part one and two. And rounding out the list is what I consider the best episode the Goosebumps TV series had to offer, and that is the werewolf of Fever Swamp. Perhaps other than only Night of the Living Dummy, there is no episode that I remember as vividly as the Werewolf of Fever Swamp. And upon rewatching it, now I remember why. So in this episode, you have Grady Tucker and his family move to Fever Swamp so that his parents can conduct some sort of scientific experiment with some livestock. Uh, to determine how well they can adapt to certain areas. And in this case, that being the swamp. So while they're there, um, a stray dog comes into the house and uh, Grady pretty much takes it in as, as his own. And the dog was named uh, Vandal. Once Vandal shows up, some things start happening. Uh, the livestock start being terrorized and being killed and getting away because the, the fence that they're in gets torn apart. And while this stuff is happening, Grady is learning a little bit more about Fever Swamp and some of the tall tales they have. He meets his neighbor, whose name I believe was Will, and he also runs into a hermit that lives in the swamp. And upon meeting Will, Will kind of feeds him this story of a werewolf that lives in the swamp with the indication that the hermit is a werewolf. So as the livestock start being terrorized and these accidents start happening, the family is blaming Vandal the dog. And Grady's not having it because he already hates living in the swamp and the dog is like the one bright spot to the move. So he kind of takes it upon himself to prove that there is something else going on. Now, where this episode really shines, and I think the reason why it is so etched within my memory, is because of the nightmarish imagery of the werewolf itself. I mean, the transformation that they show, the costume, uh, the mouth, the hair, the size and the absolutely ravenous nature of its movements and attacks was really terrifying as a child. And as an adult, of course, not as much, but I still kind of felt a bit of the impact. So with the story, you have uh, Will trying to catch the hermit as the werewolf, but plot twist, Will is the werewolf, the uh, next door neighbor. And so the werewolf starts attacking the house and the family, um, and Will's mom is still believing it's the dog. And so Will ends up locking his mom in the barn and going to try and capture the wolf, pretty much. And while he's running through the swamp, 
um, he thinks the wolf gets caught in one of the hermit's nets. And once it's caught, the hermit comes out and pretty much tells the story of how the werewolf took his family from him, and he has been living in the swamp ever since so that he can get his revenge. But of course, the werewolf is not in the net, so it shows up and kills the hermit, and Grady keeps running, and right before the wolf is about to kill Grady, the full moon gets covered up by some clouds, and that is when Grady learns that Will is the werewolf because he starts transforming back into human form. And he's telling Grady to run, that he doesn't want to hurt him, that he doesn't have control. Um, and then, of course, because it wouldn't be an episode if Grady actually ran away when Will told him to, Grady stays, and Will transforms back into a werewolf. And just before Grady's about to get his face clawed off, the dog comes and pushes the werewolf into the swamp. And I guess the swamp is really acidic, because he drowns, and eventually, like, you see a skull pop up towards the end of the episode, and it's all, uh... His face is all melted off and whatnot. And what I like about the episode is that with his mom locked in the barn, eventually the sister shows back up and she gets chased by the werewolf. And so she hides in the barn with her mom. And they both have the moment of realizing that Grady was telling the truth, that it's not Vandal, because they're clearly being attacked by something much, much larger and more ferocious than uh, the, the typical house dog. Um... So I, I like that there's uh, some discovery of truth, even though at the end of the episode, they still are kind of on the standpoint of, well, we don't actually know it was a werewolf. There's no evidence to support it, but clearly it wasn't the dog.